Gracious Father, we come again tonight, opening up your word and reading the um, conclusion of this narrative on Solomon. And, and Lord, uh, you, it, it ends with quite a uh, bang here from a narrative standpoint, Lord, we acknowledge. And, and there's a number of things that um, I believe you'd have us learn and help us see those things. Help us learn them. Help us see those things that, that actually might have some application to us. We acknowledge that most of this has to do with your dealing with the Israelites, but there are also lessons we can learn, so we ask for clarity on that. And as we go through this, Lord, may we um, understand the solemn nature of this particular point in the entire Old Testament, at this critical point of, well, greatness for the Israelites, but also the beginning of destruction. And may we soberly ponder um, that uh, tonight. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we are in chapters 10 and 11. We're uh, bringing to a close the, the Solomon narrative that is found in 1 Kings. Um, we know that Solomon has uh, been given great wisdom. We know he has great wealth. We're going to cap off that um, truth in 10, and then in that little bit of space between 10 and 11, that little white space, the whole world starts to change. So uh, we're going to start off here with uh, chapter 10, verse 1. First Kings 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the report until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king a hundred twenty talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones, Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almagwood and precious stones. And the king made of the almagwood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almagwood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. So we have the 
very well-known uh, Queen of Sheba uh, story. We find it interesting. What, what role does she play in this whole narrative? I mean, this is quite a bit of space given to her, and she just seems to come out of left field in this whole narrative of Solomon. So we need to ask ourselves, what's the significance? What role does she play? Well, first off, where is Sheba? <laughs> She's clearly queen of it, but where is it? Um, it's thought to be, we don't know specifically where it is. There's no Sheba uh, today or hasn't been for a long time. We think it's either in the southern part of Arabia or the northern part of Africa, right where those two meet. Ethiopia's been uh, thrown out as a potential place. So it would be a ways away. I mean, certainly not someone coming from China, but that would never be in the you know, ancient Near Eastern narrative. But somebody quite a ways away and culturally quite a bit different and someone that is not in, in a trading at that time a trading or some kind of relationship with Solomon. So what this is, Sheba, the Queen of Sheba, represents somebody from outside the known area of that of uh, Israel coming in and verifying this, what is going to be an amazing statement that's made uh, toward the end of 10 about how uh, Solomon is the, the wisest and richest king on all the earth at this time. So she's coming in and kind of verifying that, okay? So she shows up, and she comes because she's heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. So the, the fame of Solomon, his wisdom and his wealth, and those are the two things that we're going to keep hearing about, are directly connected to God, coming from God. Now, we need to take a little bit of an ancient Near Eastern view of how the relationship between rulers and gods worked. Everyone had a god. There were no atheists of those days. And, and most people groups had their own god. And so I would be, uh, I'd have my god and you'd have your god. And I might go and check out your god and I might worship your god, hoping that by worshiping your god or manipulating your God, I can get something, okay? So if I go and I worship with you and I, and I go worship your God and something good happens, I go, oh, that's a good thing. But I don't convert to your God. It isn't, we don't have followers of God as we think of, as even um, uh, the Israelites think of. Remember, at this time, there's only one monotheistic religion in the world, and it's, it's the Israelites, Okay, today there's only three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Muslim or Islam. So being, having one God or converting to a God is unheard of. So people say, well, did she convert to Yahweh? No, she wouldn't even, if you would have asked her that, she would have said, what are you talking about? You know, she might have worshiped Yahweh trying to see what she can get. So she associated what's happening to Solomon to his God. And that's really common. Like, if I win in battle, I go, my God was more powerful than your God, okay? Just so that the thinking of this is, as we come into this. So she comes up, she's going to check this out. Not uncommon. Wow, you got it. This is unbelievable what's happening up there. I mean, it's just, this, this is phenomenal. This guy's so rich, so wise, she decides she's going to go check it out. And she doesn't quite show up uh, by herself. 
She has an entire entourage, just gigantic following. I mean, can you imagine? You know, they know she's coming. They would have known for days because a big group of people traveling on the roads at that time would have been noticed. But you have this vision of, of, of hundreds of people, camels, spices, that's what she was known for, um, uh, spices, gold, all this stuff just coming down the road, if you can imagine. I mean, it had been quite a spectacle of its, in itself. And she's there to, to check out and to see this great king that she's heard about. And she gets there, and, and it's a combination of testing him, in other words, asking him uh, hard questions that, that takes great wisdom. But also she might be seeking, as we're alluded to in this thing, to tap into some of his wisdom, to actually learn from him uh, as she goes through this. So, so she shows up, she asks him all the questions, he answers all the questions. Nothing is hidden from the king that he couldn't explain to her. In other words, it seems like God is giving Solomon the answers to Sheba to credential both Solomon and thus God in, in the wisdom department. And so then she sees all that he has, his house, everything. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing to the point that it took her breath away. Well, here's a queen of what we believe is a, is a major entity. And she's seen a lot, and she's coming with this whole entourage herself. She shows up, and what she sees and hears, she finds just stunning to the extent it takes her breath away. And she says, all that I've heard about you isn't even half of what is reality. So what she sees and hears is twice as great as what she's been told. And what she's been told is great enough to cause her to make this huge long journey with all this entourage to go see it. And so she says this in 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So he's delighted in Solomon, set him on the throne because the Lord loved Israel forever. So that's why he made Solomon because he loves Israel. That's why he made Solomon king. He made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Something we need to keep in mind. Why are kings there? They are there to execute the justice and righteousness of God for the people. Remember, who's supposed to be king? God, right? People want a human king, so he puts a human king there. But God is still supposed to be ruling through that human king. Now, we're going to see that's a problem over and over and over and over in the rest of Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. We'll see that's a problem. But that is why kings are put on the throne, to execute the justice and righteousness of God. And then she gives him, you know, a gigantuous amount of gold. I'm going to do some math on that gold uh, for you. And, and spices and precious stones and all this. And, and you know, it's like a, it's, somebody said, well, why would she give him all that? And why would he give her? Go, you know, it's like a house, you know, housewarming. You know, you, you go to somebody's new's house. You know, you bring them, I don't know, a billion dollars worth of gold. You know, three million tons of spices couple special carvings, a weird animal or two. Isn't that what you guys do? And then, then that the person gives you that at your, coming to your house. Then when they go, you got to give them a what? A, a thank you for coming gift, you know? So you give them, I don't know, a whole bunch of, you know, 
millions of dollars of gold back and you give them all kinds of weird things that you have that they don't have. And, and yeah, it just kind of works that way. And so that's, that's what he does. He gives her all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given to her by the bounty of king. So, so really, she comes away going, oh, this is unbelievable. I mean, I've given you all this. I've come to prepare to not really pay homage to, but, but in this process of, of going, wow, here, I want to be in some kind of relationship. And that's what we see. We see a, a trading relationship develop here. But he gives back to her almost more. I mean, he, he, he almost trumps her graciousness play by giving her back more. And she's, I mean, she's just like, just blown away. So what are we supposed to take from this? Well, this and the rest of 10 is that this is the pinnacle. This is the, the, the ultimate I mean, the nation of Israel has a king that is greater than any other king on earth. That is way beyond anything Israel could. Kind of remember, these were slaves in Egypt. They were going nowhere fast. They were dying at an incredible rate. And God brings them out and now has them at this, this point of greatness. Let's go on. Verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three miners of gold went into the each shield and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and at the back of the throne was a calf's head, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom." All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for a hundred fifty. 
And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Yeah, this is, this is epic uh, wealth on, um, on the part of Solomon. Um, first off, his throne. This is a depiction of his throne. Now, you can either see it that way in the ivory, or you can see the ivory actually all covered in gold. Both ways. And this has the alternate, which has the, uh, the uh, calf's head on the back there. Instead of, it either can be translated rounded or calf's head that has that in leather. So uh, that's a lot of ivory. I mean, that's just a whole lot of, uh, of stuff going on there. So that's one way to look at it. And then the other thing is 66 talents equals in today's price of gold about a billion dollars. So that's just his, his basic intake. That's not counting everything else that they get from uh, all the merchants and everything else, the taxes they put on all that. So, so he takes in, and in his time, a, a billion dollars at today's price of gold. That doesn't even count. That has a gold inflationary uh, number, but that doesn't even count the normal monetary inflation amount. So this is, is epic um, for his time. He has so much gold, he's making everything out of gold. I mean, yeah, I don't know what to do with this gold. I got so much gold. Let's go make this, make some shields, go do this, 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 stash them here, put some in our, you know, summer home up in the forest. We'll put gold here, here. I mean, that guy's got so much gold, he literally doesn't know what to do with it. Now, we're not going to read ahead, <laughs> but next week in the next chapter, we're going to see partly where the source of all that gold is. And that's part of the problem. There might be a slight taxation challenge here. Not only in the quantity of the taxation, but in the distribution of who gets taxed. And, and I always say, the writer of 1 Kings didn't put chapters in. So he's anticipating that we're going to know very shortly where a ton of this gold came from, literally. And, um, and the impact that has. Remember when and this is just good to keep in mind. Remember where this story starts. This story starts in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur to make the crescent trail into the promised land. And he, and he tells them in the very opening when he calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless all the families, or it depends on the translation, all the people of the earth through your through you and your offspring, okay? This moment right here, chapter 10 of 1 Kings, is the greatest chance of human fulfillment of that. This is the hinge point of all of the Israelite narrative, going back to the beginning of Exodus, all the way to the end of the Old Testament. This is the hinge point. The nation of Israel is as great as it's ever going to be. It has the greatest chance to fulfill that promise to bless all the people of the earth through Solomon. Yet he's going to fail. And it shows us that that promise cannot be fulfilled through a human king. Because at this moment, he's the greatest king on earth, and if he can't be that blessing, then no human can be that blessing. 
Now, as Christians, we know that blessing is, comes through Jesus Christ. But at the time, when they're looking for that, that Messiah, that human, that's going to be the blessing, they probably would have thought at the time, well, this is as good as it's going to get. How can it get greater than this? Though, quite frankly, they probably would have thought, well, this is going to continue. I mean, in our own lifetime, what do we always think? Whatever's happening now is going to continue to happen. Right? I mean, when you go to bed at tonight, you assume tomorrow is going to be essentially like today. You don't assume that you're going to lose your job at 2 o'clock in the morning, you don't, especially if you don't work at 2 o'clock in the morning. We all assume that, the, that it's going to continue what's going on, and they would have thought the same thing. That what they don't know is how significantly things are going to change just one chapter later. As we start in 11, and we see 11 literally is the first step to the slide to destruction. But at this moment, between 10 and 11, this is the peak. This is as good as it's going to get. And so... All this is going on, and we, we've talked about this, you know, in 23, 24, greatest king on all the earth. Every, but we've seen the red flags since the beginning, right? And we got another one in here. And Solomon imports, import of horses was from Egypt. What are we told back in Deuteronomy 17? We read this before. Deuteronomy 17, God says through Moses to the Israelites, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Listen tonight how many times Egypt is mentioned. Egypt is going to be mentioned a number of times, and they're strictly told never to go back to Egypt again. And they do. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he be acquired for himself excessive silver or gold. Okay, king, all you got to do, don't get a bunch of horses, and especially don't go to Egypt to get them. Don't have a bunch of wives, and don't acquire a bunch of gold and silver. Got it? If you just follow that, it's all going to go great for you. Okay, so I got to get a bunch of horses from Egypt, get a bunch of wives, and acquire a bunch of gold, and I'll be golden. And that's what Solomon does. I mean, we can't miss this direct teaching. Now, Jesus, or Jesus, God, uh, David has told Solomon, God has appeared twice to Solomon. Solomon would certainly know the Deuteronomic law, yet he still, in face of all of that, does what is wrong, as we'll see in chapter 11 here. First Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, 
along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place at Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Yeah. Hmm. Knew this was coming, but still, it's just amazing, stunning when we get here. Now, we often marvel at the, the 700 wives and 300 concubines. You know what? That's a huge number, but it wouldn't have mattered. 50 wives probably would have still turned them away from the Lord. The, the problem is this. Solomon probably in his defense would have said, what do you want? I'm still worshiping you, God. I'm still offering great sacrifices. I'm, I'm, I'm offering tremendous burnt offerings. I'm, I'm doing all this. I've built this temple. What do you want from me? So I go a couple places with my wives, and I, and I built a couple of high places so they can worship. And oh, maybe I participated in some of their worship, but I'm still worshiping you. And this is the fundamental problem since really at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf. God is clear. God is clear then, clear today. He will accept no worship of anything else other than him. When he says we have to hate our family to love Jesus, it's clear that God seeks to be the only thing we worship in our lives. So it isn't okay to just worship God and then worship other things. He is a jealous God. He will accept no other worship. Solomon, he's supposed to be the wisest man that's on the face of the earth. If he's so wise and if this is the wisdom of God, why can't he see what's coming? Or what's arrived? I mean, you can just visualize it. Okay, so he marries, and, and she's the prototype, the, the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. Um, kind of the, the type, the, 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 the example of all the other women. So, strategic alliance with a major uh, a country to his southeast. Still a powerful country. A country that provides tremendous amount of grain because of the, the Nile there, the delta there. I mean, even in, in the times of the Roman Empire, they provided the Roman Empire with almost all the, the grain it consumed. So it was a great trading partner, provided strategic defense. So he married the Pharaoh's daughter. 
And things are going along. He marries Viola. And, and they go, hey, I, I know you don't worship my God, but can you build me an altar so that I can go worship my God? Is that too much to ask? I'm in this foreign land. You don't worship my God. There's no place I can go to worship my God. Can you just build me something? It's a reasonable request. I mean, wouldn't we just, sure, sure, honey, I'll drive you to the, you know, to the Mormon church. I'll drive you to the whatever. I'll, I mean, no problem. I want things to go smooth at home. So he does that. And can't you visualize, okay, so, so, so you're driving your spouse to their place of worship, and you've done this many times, and finally one time, they, each time they said, well, why don't you come in with me? Why don't you come in? No, 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 I can't, 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 I can't. Okay, well, maybe, maybe just this once. And you go in, and, and then, then that week is a good week. You know, instead of a billion dollars of gold, you get uh, 1.2 billion in that week. And you go, wow, this, this kind of this worked out. So the next time you go in again with them. And the next time. And then your other spouse, right? We all got, no. Um, <laughs> says, why, why don't you come in with me? And why don't you come in with me? And why don't you come in with me? It's, it's pretty easy when you're the richest and wisest king in all the earth, to think, well, what's the harm? I'm rich. I'm wise. And then to go in and you come out and God didn't zap you. You didn't get crushed in that moment. So maybe it's okay. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe all that stuff, maybe he didn't really mean it. Maybe I can keep doing this. And remember he says, you know, it's in his, his latter years, okay, when he was old. So if he reigns 40 years, let's just put it in the second half. All of a sudden, maybe he's, uh, you know, a little more inclined to be less zealous about his faith. And so he starts walking down this road. Now, we can say he's been told, God's appeared to him, but what we don't have is, well, right there, God didn't show up and say, hey, you, knock it off. We once talked, when we were talking uh, way back when in class, we were talking about, if God had a zapper, Okay? And every time we did anything wrong, he zapped us right on the spot. Zap, zap. I mean, wouldn't that be better? I mean, then we know, right? We'd probably live sinless lives because every time we we're going to get zapped, we'd zap, right? Now we might develop a nervous twitch. But God doesn't do that. Why doesn't he? What would happen if he zapped us every time? What would we become? Become puppets. We would just live in constant fear of doing 
anything because we might get zapped. And if God wanted to make puppets, he would have done so. Our problem and our blessing is he didn't make puppets. He allows us to have free will. He allows us to live our lives. Oh, he'll discipline us, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. He's disciplining Solomon. Now, whether Solomon understands he's being disciplined or not is a different story. But he disciplines us, but he allows us to live our lives. Our conclusion was, yeah, we'd love to get zapped because then we'd know right from wrong, but no, we couldn't live that way and it'd be horrible. So, no. God is long-suffering with his creations. Often he lets us go a long, long, long time before actually correcting us in a tangible way. And part of the problem is we don't always get that this correction, discipline, is connected to this. And it isn't because, you know, like people say, well, so... If I do this wrong, is it, well, it isn't like you did something wrong on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. It's that you have a lifestyle and you've turned away or, or, or ingrained in your lifestyle something that's an abomination to God. I mean, he doesn't discipline you over every time. Well, I said a bad word, so he's going to discipline me that week? No. It's when you say a bad word because you're not walking with the Lord because you have no time for the Lord and you're living in total rebellion of the Lord. Like Solomon. Solomon probably did all kinds of bad things, okay? But what are we told that he did? Worshipped other gods. That's what he's talking about. Now, in the next page, we're going to see maybe he wasn't really strong on the justice side and wasn't real strong on the righteousness side. But that isn't what he's called in question. That's a result of him not being true to Yahweh. And the consequences are going to be high. But as is so often the case in these situations, he is not the one that is going to bear the full blunt of the consequences. It'll be those that come after him. Let's go on. Verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab the commander of the army went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran, and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food. 
and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tepenis, the queen. And the sister of Tepenis bore him Genabath, his son, whom Tepenis weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genabath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, Only let me depart. God also raised up as an adversary to him Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephraimite of Zerada, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they had not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statute and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you, and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, and all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? 
And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So we finally get to the crux of the whole issue. God is angry with Solomon because his heart is turned away from God. So not only is his heart turned this way, but he's also then a turned from Yahweh. And, and God is, is going to punish him, but he's going to punish him after his uh, death. But, but what we have is three adversaries. We have one um, I don't know if you can see this real well, but the northern one, Damascus, Syria, right up here, okay? Edom, the southern one, right here. And then he has one from within, his own servant. So three adversaries are, are pecking away at him. None of them are successful. They don't destroy him, okay, or his kingdom. But they're meant as the discipline of God. What Solomon is supposed to be going is, why is this guy bothering me? Why is this guy such a thorn in my northern flank up here? What is God trying to teach me? But he doesn't. Clearly, he just says, I can take care of this guy. I'm way richer, wiser than him, more powerful. I'm just going to take him out. Now, it's interesting. The two external thorns are both a result of, or our, our people groups that David easily conquered. And it was in David conquering them that, that they were put down, but also that was a bit of the seed of the rebellion. Why are they coming after Solomon? Because they're basically bad, mad at the Israelites for being conquered by David. And where do all three of them go when Solomon pushes back against them? Egypt. When you go to Egypt, even remember when we were in Jeremiah, for those of you who took Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, hundreds of years later, right at the destruction, the very end, where does Jeremiah get taken to and he doesn't want to go to? Egypt. Going to Egypt is not a good thing. Solomon doesn't see what God's trying to teach him through the discipline of these three individuals to try to turn him. And they go to Egypt and he's saying, good riddance, when he should be saying what? Oh, whoa. This is a sign. Now, the Pharaoh that, whose daughter he married, there were, there's a different Pharaoh at this time. So clearly that relationship isn't what it was either. So he knows by going to Egypt that that's bad. But it doesn't, it doesn't impact him. And he's been told by God that he's going to lose his kingdom, but that for the sake of the David and the covenant, that he's not going to lose it in his lifetime, but it's going to happen in the generation and generations after him. And, and, and you would think, in his head, after all he's seen, all he's heard, he would go, oh, i got to turn back to, to God. Wholly and completely. I've, I've got I've to, if nothing else, stop worshiping at these alternate sites. I should destroy them. 
But even if I don't do that, I should just stop worshiping there myself. But he doesn't see it. And it's so easy to be us. Thousand, three thousand years later and look back and read it and go, God, guy, what an idiot. Can he see? But we all know that if somebody looked at our lives 3,000 years later, okay, that'd be a little tough, say 50 years later, couldn't Tom see what God was trying to do? Couldn't he see how God was trying to get him to not do this or do this or turn back or see this truth? But Solomon was blinded. He was blinded by his his own wealth, his own success, but also by his idea of having all these wives, all these relationships, and all that came with it. I mean, you don't have 700 wives because you want a couple extra wives. I mean, that he is making a statement to the world about himself by having all those wives. And so his, his desire to, to, well, to be somebody apart from God. See, his wisdom spoke to God. His wealth even spoke to God. His wives spoke to his own desire to be somebody. Again, 700 wives is not about having some wives. It's about being able to say to the world, I have More wives than any other king. I'm someone in this world. And I did that by myself because God wouldn't have done that because I'm an abomination of God by doing it. Look at me. And again, he was positioned. I mean, we had this question and you can't answer it, but we're kicking around today. What happens if Solomon hadn't done what he did? I mean, the ascension of the nation of Israel is unbelievable. And could they actually have fulfilled the Abrahamic promise by blessing the world if if Solomon hadn't turned? But then you could say that about many, many, many biblical figures. But one man's action starts a descent of a whole people, millions of people, They'll have some ups and downs, and we'll see that. There'll be some times they rally, but those are always short-lived. And they go down again. And he, and he does it for a lot of reasons, and many we probably can never understand. But he blows through some powerful stop signs. Powerful, powerful stop signs. I just wonder us. How many stop signs do we blow through? How many times do we clearly seem to ignore what God's trying to get us to see? And then as we see, Jeroboam, God picks Jeroboam out seemingly for no reason at all, picks him out and says, I'm going to give you ten tribes. And if you will listen to all that I command you and you walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commands as David my servant did, 
I will be with you and you'll build a sure house as I built for David. And I'll give Israel to you. He's got to go, I won the lottery. This is unbelievable. I'm just a servant. I'm just going along my doing my thing. I'm not even, I'm an Ephraimite, you know, drive Ephraim, who cares about that? I'm just doing my thing here. And God says, you have been chosen to be king over all of the northern 10 tribes. There's only 12. I think that's nine, nine, 12, 10. That's 10 twelves. That was a joke. Um, And he's the guy, all he's got to do. Here's a lottery ticket for $27 trillion. All you've got to do is follow my commands. And if you looked ahead, maybe he can't do it. But it's amazing that he has made that offer by God. Now, you may be doing your math right now and you go, wait, he's getting 10 tribes and God is keeping one tribe for, for Solomon and for Solomon's offspring, because Solomon has all of them, Solomon's offspring to, to fulfill that covenant of David and to keep that lampstand of David and, and because Jerusalem, he's keeping, and you go, wait a minute, there are 12 tribes. Where, who's the missing tribe? Well, there's really three answers potentially. One, Levites, they don't have land. They just kind of are all amongst the tribe of the Levites and the priests come from that. Could be, probably not. In fact, pretty sure it's not. Simeon gets rolled into Judah. It just kind of dissolves into Judah and becomes part of Jude. That could be. But most likely is what we're going to see next week. The tribe of Benjamin, which is in between the northern tribes and Judah, we see next week is going to get split in half. And part goes north and part goes south. And the part that goes north is super important and the part that goes south is super important. So Solomon dies probably thinking he's been the most successful king that's ever lived. Because he's still got all of Israel and he's the richest and wisest king on the face of the earth. What he doesn't know is there's a chapter 12. And it maybe isn't going to go so well. We'll get to that next week. Go to your discussion groups. If you haven't been in a, in a discussion group, come see me.